So over the last three weeks, we've been looking at Psalm 46, which I felt uh, really prophetically is, a, is a, a word in season for the church during this coronavirus. And the context of that verse is very important. So I'm going to go through um, again what I'm doing every time when I share these words with you is I'm going to begin by giving you the meaning of the verses that we're reading in their original context. So in order to understand the original context, you've got to understand the context of the psalm. So for those of you joining for the first time today, let me just recap what that is. So Psalm 46 was probably written by the sons of Korah. It was to be sung by the virgin choir Alamoth, uh, the virgin choir of Israel. And it was composed shortly after, uh, probably shortly after a miraculous deliverance of the city of Jerusalem that God had enacted when they had been surrounded by Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and a huge army. So things were completely hopeless for the people of Jerusalem. They were all going to suffer terribly and then be conquered. And at the last hour, uh, because the righteous king of Judah at the time, so Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, um, his name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah took a threatening letter that he had received from Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, outside the walls. He took it into the, the temple where the presence of God was. He spread out that letter and he cried out to God for mercy that God would help them and deliver them from this, this impossible enemy. And that night, in response to that prayer, uh, the angel of the Lord went out into the Assyrian camp and um, killed 185,000 soldiers in a single night. And the next morning, the um, people of, of Jerusalem woke up to look out over the city walls and to see countless piles of bodies uh, of the, the corpses of their enemies. And so God uh, produced the most unlikely and miraculous uh, deliverance for his people. And this psalm was then uh, composed as a way to commemorate this incredible deliverance. So uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's, let's read the psalm together. I'm going to put, put it up on the slides for you. And, and then we're going to have a look in particular this afternoon at the last two verses. So to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth, the virgin choir. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Now, here are our verses for tonight. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. 
Selah. So over the last three weeks, what we've done is we've gone through the first nine verses of that psalm and we've explained what they mean in their context and then how they apply to us uh, today. And if you want to recap on those, all three of those messages are available on my YouTube channel um, or uh, on my on my blog. So, I mean, on my podcast. And if you if you'd like the link for that, just send me an email and I can send you the, the relevant links. So uh, this afternoon, Easter Sunday, we're going to focus on the final two of those verses. The be still and know that I am God and what follows. And I'm going to divide this message into three sections. Uh, the first thing I want to discuss, as always, as I've been wanting to do, is the meaning of these verses in their original context. What did the sons of Korah mean when they were speaking to the, the people of Jerusalem, telling them after this incredible deliverance, be still and know that I am God. So God speaking to them through the psalmists. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the sons of Korah rejoicing in front of the people of Jerusalem, saying, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So if you understand the, the context of the psalm, uh, as I've explained it to you, it's not that difficult to understand why they said these words. Now, that's the first thing we're going to give ourselves to, because there is some richness in that original context that I do want to bring up. Secondly, when we've looked at the original context, I then want to look at how is it that we today can have the same confidence that God is with us and that he will be exalted in the earth. Because the people of Jerusalem had just witnessed with their own eyes the most dramatic miracle. They could look out over the city walls of Jerusalem and they could see 185,000 corpses. And it was the sight of that, with the sons of Korah having said, Come, come and behold, come and look at the works of the Lord. Look out and see. They could then, based on that evidence, say, be still and know that I am God. So the question is, how is it that we today can have the same confidence? Because we can't look out over the city walls of Jerusalem and see 185,000 corpses. That's the second question I want to answer. How can we have the same confidence? And then thirdly, how then... <clears throat> Do these words apply to us? What does it mean that we should be still and that we should know that he is God? How can we exalt as they did that the Lord of hosts is with us? He's going to be exalted in the earth and he's the God of Jacob. He's our refuge. How can we say those words? What do they mean to us today? Okay, so those are the three sections. The original context how we can have the same confidence and how these words apply to us if we do know we can be confident that they do. So firstly, the, the meaning of these verses in their original um, context. Well, um, obviously the sight of 185,000 bodies um, as the inhabitants of Jerusalem looked out over the city walls, that was a proof to them that their God, the God of the Hebrews, was the true God, that he could be relied upon. I mean, he had miraculously delivered them. He is very much in control of history. They could now see. Uh, he will not tolerate the blasphemy of his name. Um, 
his plan is to is to exalt his people. He's he's still busy with his people, and his plan will not be derailed by the attacks of the enemy, the enemies of his people. Um, when they looked out over the over the walls, they saw those bodies. It was a dramatic proof to them that God is zealous for his own glory and that his glory is, is going to be displayed in all the earth. It's not just them. It's, it's, it's his faithfulness to his people will be seen by all the nations. So he will be glorified in all the nations. And uh, particularly this thing that he, he is faithful to his promises, particularly the promise that he'd made to Jacob those many years before, those hundreds of years before this that God had made a covenant with their father, Jacob, and that God was still being faithful to his covenant. So it was all these things that the, the children of Israel were, were, it was confirmed to them through the evidence of what they were seeing. And so the sons of Korah now say in the context of, of this evidence, they say to the children in Jerusalem, be still, be still and know. Know that he is God. He will be exalted in the nations. You've seen with your own eyes what God has done. You know, this is something that could never have been done without God. It was a completely miraculous thing. This is something which required absolutely nothing from you. This, you didn't do anything to deserve this. You didn't do anything to create this victory. All that happened was your king, the one who represented you, went into the temple and begged for mercy and asked God to intervene. And by faith, this great victory was won. This is what is being displayed. So you can know that I am God. By this you can understand that I am all that it means to be God. What does it mean that he is God? That he is the fountain of all power. All power comes from him. He raises one up. He casts another down. The history of nations is in his hands. He is the fountain of all wisdom. There is no counsel that can be laid against the Lord. There are no plans that can prevail against him. He's the fountain of all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He sees all things. He's the fountain of all justice. He's the one that defends what is right and just and fair. And every act of injustice, every unjust person, every sin, every secret will be uncovered and judged and done away with. He is the God of all justice, the beginning and the end of all things. He's the God of all goodness. They were to know, be still and know that I am God. I am the fountain of goodness and of, and of, of, um, of blessing, of protection, of all the good things that you desire. I am the one who gives them to you. All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. And in him, there is no shadow of turning. He doesn't change. He's immutable is the word. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he shows no favoritism to anybody. If he has defended uh, our forefathers as he defended Jacob, look at what he did to Jacob. Jacob left his land. Uh, he had to run away from his brother who was going to murder him after he stole his birthright. And those many years after God promised him, when he fell asleep on that stone that night and he saw the Jacob's ladder going up into heaven. God made a covenant with Jacob that night said, if you will serve me, I will bring you back to this land because I've promised this land to your grandfather Abraham, to your father Isaac, and I'm now promising this land to you and of your descendants. I will make your descendants a great nation and through them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. These were the promises that God made to Jacob and 
now God is saying to the children in, in Judah these many years later that you can know that I am that God. And the same God who was faithful then will be faithful to you today. And I can tell you, if we can just jump ahead in the message, the same God will be faithful to you today too, if you put your faith in him. And, uh, and he, he, when he says, be still, know that I'm God, he's also saying, I'm the God of all truth. Be, be still and know that I am God, not the gods of the nations. Yes, Sennacherib and the Assyrians marched through the nations of the day, destroying all their kingdoms, burning their idol gods in the fire because they were wood and stone. They were not real gods. But when Sennacherib came against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, he met his match and far above it because he was now attacking the people of the one true God. Be still and know that I, the God of the Hebrews, am God. He goes on, he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So, so what is God saying to the people of Jerusalem at the time? He's, he's saying to them, my plans are bigger than just you. I will be exalted in the nations. I haven't overlooked the nations. I see the nations. I see their threats. I see their blasphemy. I see their sin. But I also see many among the nations down through the centuries of human history into the church age, many among the Gentiles whom I will call to be my own. My eyes are not on you only. The, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, it's not only you that my plans apply to. My plans are bigger than you, and they are bigger than you think they are. Um, I've, got, I've got the whole earth in my field of vision. And even now, uh, God does still promise this to us today. There's a verse in Revelation that says, uh, John says, After these things I looked, and, and behold, there was this great multitude which no one could number. And he said that multitude was made up of people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And they were standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, having been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And they had palm branches in their hands, and they were worshiping. They were crying out, salvation belongs to our God, to our God. This is not just now the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews. When Jesus came into this world, the 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 demarcation of the covenant people of God being the Jews was broken wide open. And the gospel, as the law and the prophets had said it would, was broken out into the, the Gentile world. And so I don't care where you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care whether you think that Christianity is not for you or the God of, of Christianity is for a different people group. I'm here to tell you the God of the Bible is your God. The God of the, and, and, the, and his son, Jesus Christ, is your savior. There is this great multitude. I will be exalted among the nations, says God. I will be exalted in the earth. Um, they go on. They say, um, the Lord of hosts is with us, say the, the sons of Korah. So, so not only is he, is he God, you know, know, know that I am God, he says, but not only is he God with all knowledge and wisdom and power, and not only is he the one who will be exalted in the earth, but he is the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh of angel armies, the God of angel armies. That's what that word hosts means. He, he has dominion over every being that exists in the universe, even those we cannot see with our eyes, including all the battalions and legions of angels who are all obedient to him because his voice is the voice of their general and their ruler. You know, it, it's like in the days of Elisha, 
when there was this uh, company of 50 Syrian soldiers that came to Elisha's house, having been sent by their king to arrest him. And they surrounded the home of Elisha and the, the servant of Elisha was terrified. And Elisha was, was, was perfectly calm. Why? Because like the sons of Korah tell us, he was, he was still and he knew that his God was God. He knew that his God was the Lord of hosts. And so what does he do? He, he, he prays. He says, um, Lord, um, open his eyes. He prays for this young man that he may see. And, and so the Lord opened the eyes of this young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So it is the Lord of hosts who is with the people of Jerusalem. That's what the sons of Korah are telling them. So don't fret. You may see 185,000 soldiers. We, that's what we were seeing. But the, he's the God of angels that we can't see, the God of angel armies. And then not, as, not only is he um, God, not only is he the God uh, who will be exalted in the nations and the God of angel armies, but he's also the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our refuge, say the sons of Korah. And there is a profound depth of wealth in this statement. And I want us to just dwell here for a second. What does it mean when the sons of Korah are telling the people of Jerusalem, the God of Jacob is our refuge? Well, the first thing he is saying is that uh, they are saying is that he is the God of the individual. So with this one statement, in, in, in a quick bound, in one quick leap, the, the psalmists take us from this great expansive view of God that they've painted of the, of the passage of, of time and of history all the way through to the very end of time when God will be exalted and the, the, the physical and spiritual expanse of the glories of the universe and how God is, is, is commanding them all, even the, the, the hosts of angels. We're taken from this like magnificent sweep of time and of space in a single statement they take us then to this single man to this one man jacob and they say that god is not just the god of all that but he's the god of the individual he's the god who bound himself to a man a very imperfect man named jacob i want to read you what one of the the bible commentators a guy called alexander mclaren said about this just concentrate see if you can get this the single soul stands out clear and isolated Speaking of Jacob now, as if there were none in the universe but God and himself. And the whole fullness of the divine power and all the tenderness of the God heart are lavished upon the individual, even though the armies of the skies wait upon his nod. Wow, man, what an incredible piece of commentary. So he's the God of the individual. And I want you to know, my friend, that God knows you as an individual. His eyes are on you. He sees you. He loves you as a person. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. The Bible says that God, without God's permission and without his knowledge, not a sparrow on this planet dies. And you are of far more worth than many sparrows. God is a God who, who enters into relationship with individuals. And he, in fact, he fills them with his Holy Spirit. They come and make, so the Father and the Son, in the person of the Spirit, they come and make their home inside of individual people. You can have an encounter with God himself. 
because he's the God of Jacob. Uh, the sons of Korah say to the, the children of, of, of Jerusalem, he's, the, he's the, the God of Jacob. So the next thing that means is that he is, is bound to his people by covenant. He is our refuge. Why? Because he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. The New Testament says God has sworn to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that he will be with their descendants. He will give this land to them and through them, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. God has bound himself by way of covenant to his people, say the sons of Korah to the people in Jerusalem. And so you can know that he will continue to defend you because his own honor is at stake. He has promised it and he always keeps his promises. And of course, that applies to you in the new covenant because God has bound himself to you. If you have put your faith in Jesus as a Christian, God is bound to you by the blood of his own son. And so he will be a very present help for you in time of trouble. Um, I keep jumping to the third part of this message, sorry, but I can't help myself. Uh, the sons of Korah uh, continue. They say he's the God of Jacob. What else could they mean? Well, he's a multi-generational God. He is concerned with the past and he is concerned with the future. God sees all of time. He, he, indeed, he is the only one who sees the big picture of everything that is happening. So you can be still. You can be still and know God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. So be still. He is the God of Jacob. What, what he is doing today is the continuation of what he has been doing throughout all human history. There is a single plan that has been and continues to unfold through his providential control of all human history. God is not out of control. He has never been out of control. And his plan, perfectly pl planned, is perfectly unfolding in space and time. So be still. Be still and know that he is God. He is the God of Jacob. Uh, lastly, I would say this means that he is the God of grace. Just remember who, who, who Jacob was. He was a devious, conniving, deceiving, lying thief of a man. He lied to his brother. He, he um, usurped his brother's, he stole his brother's blessing, took advantage of his brother. He lied to his poor father, broke his father's heart, and then had to run away. And actually, as he runs away, he continues to lie. You know, he, he deceives Laban. Even when he comes back, he deceives Esau again. He says, yeah, I'll come and be with you. I'll follow you. And he never follows him. He goes somewhere else. He was a very imperfect man, full of deception and lies. And yet he learned through a lifetime filled with the fatherly discipline of God. If you see the life that Jacob had, it, it was a hard life. In fact, when he goes down to, to Egypt with his son, Joseph, and he meets Pharaoh, Jacob, the old man now, uh, in his hundreds, he says to, to, to Pharaoh, many and evil have been the days of my life. God disciplined that man, and yet God never forsook him. It is the same God who was faithful to his promise to Jacob and disciplined him as a father does his son. It is the same God who is your God. Children of Israel, say the sons of Korah to the people in Jerusalem. Because of his covenant with our fathers, he will be with us. So, yes, the sons of Korah are addressing the children of Israel to be still 
for all these reasons and know that he is God and he will be exalted. But perhaps also the sons of Korah are addressing the unbelieving nations, those who are attacking the people of God, uh, like the Assyrians. And this, this address now goes out to the nations saying, you have now seen what God has done. You who like raging waves of the sea, if you read the first part of the psalm, are crashing against the mountain of Jerusalem. Let the sight of this slaughter of the Assyrians prove to you that the God of the Hebrews is the one and only true God, and you must stop your raging against the people of God. Because whoever touch the covenant people of God, touch the apple of his eye. So, so God is saying to the nations in this, in your raging against my people, against my kingdom, and this goes for those who persecute the church today, who persecute Christians, in your raging against my people, you will only find yourself fighting against God. And he is an indomitable foe. You cannot fight against God. Be still and know that I am God. Not the idols that you serve. There is no point in denying my existence. There is no point in fighting against my people. Lay down your arms. Lay down all your arguments and be still. For know that I am God. For you too can find peace with me. My hand is stretched out to you as well. You can also find peace with me. Okay, so that brings us to the end of, of the first uh, little section of this message where we've tried to understand what these verses mean in their original context. But now we come to an important question. How do we know that we today can have a similar confidence that these people had in their day? Because the sons of Korah purposefully pointed to a visible, well-known routing of the Assyrian army by the angel of the Lord, telling the Israelites to look out over the city walls of Jerusalem upon what God had done. Look at the, the, the corpses of your enemy and see. And by that you can know that he is God. And so the sons of Korah used this physical evidence to, to stir up the faith of God's people for for his continued protection into the future. You see, faith is not blind. Christianity is not just some sentiment. It's just not, not just some, some blind faith that we choose to have. Faith is based on evidence. And so the question is, how can we today have the same kind of confidence in the presence and protection of God for us, his people? Because we can't look out over the, the walls of Jerusalem and see 185,000 corpses. You know, it's, it's this lack of evidence, lack of evidence, that has caused many, many people to reject the claims of Christianity and to deny the existence of God himself. When actually there is ample evidence. So this is the question we're asking. Is there something that has occurred in space and time? Something concrete in actual human history that can give us the confidence that they had in God in their day. And the answer is a resounding yes. And it happened 2,000 years ago. Now you may think, well, that's a long time ago. How can we place our faith in that? Well, everyone agrees something happened 2,000 years ago. Something very important. Something that changed the world forever. 
Every time you sign the date, we live in the world 2020, you are signing the date, the number of years since this thing happened 2,000 years ago. We, we actually mark time itself by this event. Now, when I say something happened 2,000 years ago, that doesn't mean that everything that's happened in human history should concern us. There are many, I mean, trillions of things that have happened in human history and in the history of the world that we should not, we don't have to concern ourselves about. But in this case, it should concern us. Why? Because we have an unprecedented level of historical certainty that 2,000 years ago, after predicting his own death and resurrection, a man named Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And, of course, the resurrection from the dead of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is what we all celebrate. Billions of people today are celebrating this fact of human history. Uh, in fact, this is what John Hume called the best attested fact of history. The documentary evidence is beyond question. We know this man rose from the dead. And if you have any interest in surviving your own death, can I suggest, even if you've never done so before, that this is something that you should give some attention. You should stop and consider it. And why not today on Easter, when we all celebrate this great fact of the resurrection? And of course, if you want to now go and study this fact, if you want to give attention to it, the place to go, if you want to know about all this that happened 2,000 years ago, is to go and read the eyewitness accounts themselves, because we have eyewitness accounts of what happened. Um, and as you do so, so those are the four Gospels in the New Testament. They're the first four books. They are the eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after the authors of those four eyewitness accounts. And if you do that, if you go and start reading the Gospels, you are going to notice very quickly that this man, there was a whole lot more to him than most people know. And I, I would suggest if you haven't done that before, go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go and read the first four books of the New Testament. And as you do, do <clears throat> let me predict what's going to happen. <clears throat> first, you are going to get struck by the astounding, miraculous power that this man had. I mean, everywhere he went, he healed the sick with a single touch, and it did not matter how sick they were or what was wrong with them. He, he cleansed lepers with a word. He just spoke and they were cleansed. He restored sight to the blind, even people who had been born blind. He gave strength to the lamb, even those who had missing limbs or withered limbs. He, he just spoke and their limbs grew out in front of the eyes of hundreds of people who saw it happen. He, he, um, he even raised the dead several times. Um, one night he, he even walked across the Sea of Galilee. He walked on water. Now, if you can just extract yourself from the jokes and, and the, the, um, the minimizing and the humorizing of, of those accounts and see them for what they are, historical accounts of things that actually happened, you begin to be struck that this man had an inexplainable 
ability to do miracles. As you continue to read through the, the New Testament accounts, let me tell you what else you're going to notice. You're going to see that he had dramatic spiritual authority. The demons knew who he was. Whenever he came near to someone who was possessed by a demon, the demons began to shriek out in fear and to say, you are the Holy One of God. And they begged him not to send them into hell. And when he gave a simple command, the demons came out and people were completely set free. Spiritual authority like no man. The next thing that's going to strike you is that this man had incomparable moral excellence. I mean, he was not like any of us. He was always patient and kind. Let me tell you, when you read the Gospels, if you can put behind you all of your preconceptions and all of the bad experiences you've had in your childhood and with church and with Christ, if you can put all that behind you and you can read these accounts as eyewitness accounts of a man who actually lived 2,000 years ago, you will begin to fall in love with this man. I'm telling you it'll happen. He is incomparable. He, he never envied. He never boasted. He wasn't proud. He, he wasn't rude to people. He, he, he wasn't self-seeking. You know, he wasn't always after his own stuff. In fact, he came as a servant. He, he wasn't easily angered. He didn't lose his temper. He kept no record of wrongs. Even when he was on the cross being killed as an innocent man, he prayed for these people who were killing him. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He was a man of perfect love. He didn't delight in evil as, as so many people in our generation do. We delight in evil. We encourage evil. We delight in perversity. We, 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 we send things to each other to encourage each other to indulge in all this perversity. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He, didn't, he, he only rejoiced in the truth. He always protected his friends. He was a faithful friend. In fact, no one has greater love than this. Then he gives his life for his friends. Those were the words of Jesus himself, and that's exactly what he did. He never failed anyone. He was the epitome of love, the embodiment of love. He was, he was gracious with people, gracious. He was compassionate. And of all men who ever lived, he was the most gentle and humble. Come to me, he, he said to the crowds, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as you read on through these eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, the, the beauty of this man's character will captivate you. No matter how jaundiced you, you are, it'll captivate you. He's the greatest lover of men and women that has ever walked the face of the earth. And yet, his, his, his moral purity was impeccable. His courage and his boldness were astonishing. This was no weak man. When you read the accounts of him, there is like a, an awful fear of this man that you actually begin to gain. His courage and his boldness were astonishing. And yet he always made time for the humble. He fed the hungry. He, he taught the ignorant. 
he loved children. Um, he, he came as a servant. He, he committed his whole life to helping people. His time was never his own. You know, huge crowds followed him wherever he went. But still, he never turned anyone away. His compassion for the sick, the poor, and the downtrodden jumps off every page that you read. His kindness and his mercy have never been matched. Listen, he stands unique above the entire human race. Stands unique. His, his insight into human nature was flawless. He had complete wisdom and he had perfect understanding of all things. And though the, the religious leaders tried to trap him many times with impossibly difficult questions, they couldn't. And in the end, they had to pay false witnesses to get him condemned. Something else you're going to notice as you read through the eyewitness accounts is that this man could predict the future with perfect accuracy. Um, and he, he made the most astonishing claims about himself. He, he said things like, I was sent to the earth by God to accomplish his work. So he claimed to know where he was before he was born. Um, he said that the entire Jewish scriptures were about him. And he claimed to be older than Abraham, who had lived a couple of thousand years before this. He claimed to be older than Abraham. He said, I and my father are one, which is why the Jews killed him in the end, because he claimed to be one with God, making himself equal with God. He claimed to be God, the Messiah, clothed in human flesh on the earth. He claimed to speak perfectly on uh, behalf of God, and every word he ever spoke, he said he got that word from God. He came to do the works of the Father. He said, I'm greater than Jonah, greater than the prophets, and they all revered the prophets. He said, I'm greater than Solomon. Greater than the kings, not just the prophets, I'm greater than, I'm greater than the kings. The greatest king Israel ever had, Solomon, who, who ruled over the, the, the biggest expanse of Israel's kingdom where they had the most land. The man who was wealthier than anybody else. He, here comes this little carpenter's son wandering around with, without a, a place to lay his head. And he says, I'm greater than Solomon. He says, I'm greater than the temple, the place where the very presence of God dwelt in, in the midst of Israel, Jesus comes and he says, I am greater than the temple because I am the presence of God with you. He said, all the prophets throughout Israel's history wanted to see the day that I came to the earth. He said, I have come to call sinners to repentance and I have power on earth to forgive sins. What kind of claim is that? To claim to have authority to forgive sins. Well, he said it. He said, I'm the light of the world. He said, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. He claimed that at the end of time, he would sit on a, on a throne and he would judge the living and the dead. And that eternal life was only possible through faith in him. I mean, as, as I'm, I'm, I'm purposely escalating the, the dramatic nature of the claims Jesus made. Put yourself back in the situation of a, a first century Jewish believer, a Jewish person who's hearing this man walk around Palestine, make these claims. That I am the judge of the living and the dead and that eternal life is only possible through faith in me. I mean, if it were not true, it would be completely insane. 
He said, I am the way to heaven. I am the truth and I am the way to eternal life. He said to Martha, um, this family he was friends with, he said to one of them, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. And she said, yes, I believe it. And I want to tell you today, my friends, that I believe it too. And I know many of you do. So the point I'm making with all this is that history, this is history. It's, this is not some fable. It's not some fairy tale. This is not something that we've made up. This actually happened 2,000 years ago. This man said that he was the savior of the world. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And he said, they will crucify me. And on the third day, I will rise again. And guess what? He did. And when he rose from the dead, he confirmed the truth of every other statement he had ever made. No man ever spoke like Jesus and no man will ever speak like Jesus. He is unique. And after dying on the cross at Calvary, where he took our sin, the punishment for our sin upon himself, he took our punishment and he suffered for it and he died for it so that we could be set free. He then rose from the dead. And that great uh, statement in John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, explains all of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. What a promise. That's the promise of Easter. So just as the Israelites were to look out over, over the walls of Jerusalem, and they were to see those countless 185,000 corpses, and by looking at those corpses, they could know that God is faithful in the same way the sight of Jesus Christ displayed in the Gospels, the sight of Jesus on that cross crucified for us, risen from the dead, assures you and me that God is for us and that we can be still. And we can know that he's God. We can know that Jesus will be exalted in all the earth. We have confidence that, that here on earth, the same earth where he was once despised and rejected and whipped and beaten and, and crucified, where he was slaughtered like a, like a harmless lamb. On the same earth, here, he will reign as king, the Bible says, and his dominion will be from one end of earth to the other end, and we as his people will reign with him, and he alone on that day will be exalted in the dignity of his kingship over an eternal kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth, says Jesus to you today. Okay, now the third part of my message is very short because I've made many applications as we've gone through today. But the last question we wanted to answer was just this. How then do these words apply to us? What does it mean that we should be still and know that he is God? Well, first of all, when we are told as believers, as Christians, to be still, what God is saying to you today is don't fret about the future. 
Even Jesus himself said, do not worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. You can't control the smallest thing with your hair's black or white. You can't control it. Don't worry. God loves you. He's with you. Don't doubt that God is with you. He will keep you. And though the whole world may be raging and in fear as it is at the moment, and though there is much hardship, and though there may be things in your own life, in your business, in your finances, in, that, that you are concerned about, that you are desperately concerned about, God's word to you today is the same as it has been throughout time. Be still and know that I am God and I am your God and I will be your help. So don't be ensnared to fear of the future. What you fear will not come to pass. Take your stand and watch what God will do. He will rescue you. And he's bound to do so by covenant. By the blood of his own son, he's bound, he's oath bound to do it for you. And so ask him. And then lastly, there is an application to those who are not Christians. So for those who have never put their faith in Jesus, the same word comes to you today. Be still and know that I am God. Be still, says God to you. Cease. Stop all of your rebellion. Stop all of your arguments and your blasphemy. It is just as um, Jesus said to Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus. He said to Paul, as he appeared in glory to this man, Paul, he said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It was a, a metal strip behind where the oxen were, were pulling on a, on a yoke together, pulling a cart. It was a metal bar that if they tried to kick because they were angry, they would only hurt themselves. It stopped the oxen from kicking. And Jesus says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Be still. If you you deny Jesus, if you ridicule him, if you blaspheme him, you are only hurting yourself. So lower your weapons. Learn how pointless it is to fight against God. It is his fixed purpose, which you cannot change, that all the nations will know and exalt him. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will confess that either as they face him as judge or as they meet him as savior. And the choice is yours. So that's my exhortation to you from scripture today, from um, on, on, on Easter day. To be still, know that he's God, he's with you, he loves you. And um, 